Hey there, Guten Morgen, America. I babysit the Majestad playlist on YouTube so you don't have to. Sound like Melania. Okay, Trump's co defendant hit with devastating new order mm. one hour ago. This is 9.50 Thursday. It's a cute dress. Cute skirt. Learn English in Dublin. That sounds fun. I'm Ben Micellis from Legal AF, joined by the Hi, one ben. and only Michael Popak, and we've got some significant breaking news for you about Donald Trump's former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, more recently Donald Trump's current co-defendant in the sprawling RICO or racketeering, racketeering case brought by Fulton County District Attorney Bonnie Willis. Mark Meadows has been filing motions and documents fast and furious, including one day after the indictment was brought, Mark Meadows filed a notice of removal to try to get the case against him transferred to federal court. Mark Meadows argued that federal courts have jurisdiction, he claims, because he was a federal officer acting under Maybe color of federal law, and that he has credible federal defenses. I disagree with that, but that's the argument that he makes. You're allowed to remove the case on that basis, and then the federal judge will and decide is a summary remand is that what should take place meaning do you send it right back to the state court because it's totally frivolous or do you hold an evidentiary hearing which is one of the tools when we're talking about a removal in a criminal case and here got assigned to judge steve jones federal judge from the northern district of georgia who is now not just only hearing the mark meadows attempt to try to remove the state level prosecution to federal court but other individuals as well a total of 19 co-defendants and several of them have already filed their own variations of removals but it wasn't enough for mark meadows that judge jones set a fairly prompt evidentiary hearing for august 28th right it's pretty soon mark meadows wanted the federal court to affirmatively intervene and block fulton county's normal criminal procedures from taking place specifically mark meadows was terrified about being arrested this week and having to surrender and mark meadows went to fulton county district attorney Bonnie willis and said please don't arrest me until after the evidentiary hearing at Fulton uh, County District Attorney Phony Willis responded to Meadows lawyers you had two weeks to surrender since the indictment was handed down by the grand jury on August 14th I've been more than respectful to you I'm not giving you any extensions he needs to surrender like all of the other criminal co-defendants in this case so that was litigated before Judge Jones because Meadows wanted Judge Jones to block Fulton County District Attorney Fawny Willis. Popak, what went down in the court? Because we've got ding, 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 ding. We've got a ruling by Judge Jones. How did Judge Jones rule? 
sort of predicted this. Um, everybody's running to federal court who thinks they have an option to do that. Um, Donald, except for Donald Trump. Donald Trump right now has not filed one of these. I guess he's waiting to see what will happen with Meadows um, and Clark and Rudy Giuliani has said he's going to try. And people that, that are purely Georgia people like David Schaefer, the former head of the GOP, says, well, we were directed by the, uh, the fake electors were directed by the attorneys for Donald Trump. So maybe we were federal officers or working under them, too. Everybody wants to get out of federal court, except for people that seem to care about, that, that matters, which is Donald Donald Trump, he seems to be just fine getting processed in the Fulton County Jail. He's already negotiated his surrender and booking on Thursday. But Mark Meadows doesn't want to be there. His lawyer has come up with a scheme that looks like it's too smart by half to try to argue that all, when you read their papers, all Mark Meadows is apparently is a glorified secretary. Nothing against secretaries. But they said, well, he, he was just, you know, he moved some papers around. He visited some buildings. He got some coffee for Donald Trump. It's all within his, his duties as the chief of staff. Okay, come on. Really? I mean, and he picked up phone calls and he interfered by making phone calls and pressuring elected officials. He's being charged with trying to get officers who are sworn to do their duty under the state constitution and the U.S. Constitution not to do their duty. It goes well beyond, you know, how many, you know, who got the Diet Coke and who got the uh, the, the, the latte. And, and so when he made his motion, his first motion, I want to be in federal court, the judge says, well, all right, I really can't figure it out on the papers. I'll give you a hearing on Monday. Why don't you show up on Monday? Everybody bring witnesses. We're going to do this as an evidentiary hearing and let's everybody have full set of papers on it. And we thought that was sort of the end of it four or five days ago. And then his lawyer said, oh no, Friday's here, Friday's arrest deadline is coming. We got to all go. And there's already, you know, like 16 out of the 19 have already gotten their mug shots. And, and uh, oh, I'll be irreparably injured if I go and have to go to Rice, Rice Street Jail. It's a bad place you're on. I don't want to do it. Please take jurisdiction over me. And the judge in a very succinct, in fact, it was really like two lines, followed by five pages of analysis, but it was two lines. Your motion to stop Fawny Willis from arresting you on Friday if you don't show up at the Rice Street Jail as was agreed is denied. I am not going to, this is the judge continuing, I'm not going to do a darn thing on the merits of the case, whether you have the right to even be in my courthouse or in my courtroom under what you've alleged. I have not predetermined that. I've not prejudged that, no pun intended. I will determine that after Monday, after a full-blown evidentiary hearing. In the meantime, all the little things that go into justice at the state court level, you getting booked in process, you getting fingerprinted, you having to um, uh, respect and and uh, the orders of a state court judge who's already taken jurisdiction over the case, Judge Scott McAfee, that, that continues. In fact, that's already baked in to the removal statute that unless and until, otherwise you would have people gaming the system. They would think, oh, all I got to do is file a one-page piece of paper called a notice of removal and everything against me in the state court stops that, that marshal that's at my front door with the handcuffs and everything disappears and I, I buy some time. Everybody would be, and you know who would be gaming the system. It would be everybody named Donald Trump and the people that work for him. And so that's why we anticipated this in the federalist system. So there's already baked in there a provision that the state court continues unabated unless and until the federal judge takes jurisdiction. And based on the rulings so far by Judge Jones and his reference 
to abstention doctrines which are put in place to preserve our system of federalism between state and federal courts so each one doesn't try to interfere and stick their nose where it doesn't belong they all color within their own lines federal courts by supreme court precedent which we call abstention doctrine or the younger abstention doctrine cannot should not interfere with an ongoing criminal prosecution investigation and court case at the state court level otherwise people criminals would be or, or i'm sorry alleged criminals would be running across the street to federal court all the time oh i don't, I don't like something the prosecutor looked at me sideways they weren't nice to me in the in the bail setting and the, they didn't offer me a deal and i'm being harassed and i would please federal judge take We'd be doing this all day long. And it doesn't change because the person also claims to be a federal officer, whether they are or they're not, whether they were acting within the, and that's the big one here. Were they acting within the color of their office on the things that are alleged to be crimes in the state court level? Last time I looked in the chief of staff job description, it did not say help your boss cling to power and stop the peaceful transfer. Okay, that sounds like you're helping candidate Trump stay in office beyond his expiration date and not President Trump do his daily constitutional duties. And if that's the case, I'm just I'm just spitballing here, Ben, about what Judge Jones could write in an ultimate opinion. Then he's going to say, you know what? This case doesn't belong in federal court because, as alleged, you're nothing but a common criminal that tried to overthrow democracy. And that belongs where it is with Judge McAfee. We will follow this. We will see. But we've been right so far. This is why jurisdiction, though, is a very serious matter. What is your turf? What is not your turf? And when you see law and order judges appropriately applying abstention doctrines, asserting jurisdiction when and where it should be asserted, appropriately setting evidentiary hearings to make these determinations. That is what we expect because we want to live in an evidence-based system. We don't want to be in a system of hearsay, conjecture, rumors that are made and spread uh, by MAGA Republicans like we see in the House of Representatives. So when Mark Meadows and his counsel, a very able and smart lawyers, legal team representing Mark Meadows, they're going to have to show up on August 28th at the evidentiary hearing with evidence with admissible evidence and they are going to have to show not what they want to spin on right-wing propaganda media they'll have to show look meadows was just doing the normal stuff that chiefs of staff are supposed to do this is exactly what we expect of a chief of staff and you're going to have fawny willis in the fulton county district attorney's office they're going to line up a treasure trove of evidence it's going to be a compelling hearing the amount of evidence that phony willis is going to put on i mean by the way meadows lawyers can't just like make the argument they have to show evidence phony willis is going to put on evidence of people former trump administration officials and people who knew meadows and emails and text messages that meadows sent and saying overthrowing our democracy that is not the normal work of a chief of staff are you kidding me 
Mark Meadows was engaged in aiding and abetting insurrection, and he can't avail himself of federal jurisdiction or federal immunities when he tried to destroy the Constitution and affirmatively went into Georgia, remember this is about Georgia, and tried to overthrow the results of Georgia's election where... The governor of Georgia, the secretary of state of Georgia, the lieutenant governor of Georgia, all Republicans, all saying that Mark Meadows, who was on that call with Donald Trump, threatening the Republican secretary of state, that Meadows was uh, aiding and abetting and affirmatively involved in this conduct, in this criminal racketeering conspiracy. It's going to be evidence-based. So I'm reminded, like when Judge Eileen Cannon, back in 2022, the first time she had the Trump case relating to the search warrant, being executed at Mar-a-Lago validly. A magistrate judge signed the warrant. There was probable cause. When she asserts jurisdiction that that doesn't belong to her, and the 11th Circuit had to two scathing orders say, what are you doing? You don't have jurisdiction here. What we see in contrast to Cannon and a lot of these Trump judges is the judge here, Judge Jones, is simply following the law present evidence. I'll hold an evidentiary hearing. I will then make a reasoned ruling based on the law and the facts before me. I will decide if I have jurisdiction. But until I decide if I have jurisdiction, I don't interfere. I abstain. That's why it's called an abstention doctrine from using the federal court levers to interfere with state criminal prosecution. So I don't have the right to make this decision, Mark Meadows, and you know better. But what Mark Meadows was probably hoping for was a Trump-appointed judge when he removed it to federal court. And he was hoping to be assisted by that, by a a Trump-appointed judge. So we will keep you updated on what happens next here. Fast-moving, fast-moving situation and Popak. Appreciate your uh, breakdown right here. Want to thank everybody for uh, watching Legal AF, listening to Legal AF. Make sure you subscribe wherever you get audio podcasts. And also, while you're at it, make sure you check out MidasTouch.com, the new home of all things Midas Touch. Thank you all so much. We'll see you next time on Legal AF. Have a great one. Hey Midas Mighty, love this report? Continue the conversation by following us on Instagram, at Midas Touch, to keep up with the most important news of the day. What are you waiting for? Follow us now. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Dan Pfeiffer. And we will never get those two hours of our lives back, Dan. Just watch the Republican primary debate, the kids' table debate. Consolation bracket. Consolation prize today. Hello, we're back. Mm.
We also watched most of Donald Trump's insane this interview with Tucker Carlson. First Republican next. debate reaction. Who won? Did we, did we say that? Donald no, Trump's crazy Tucker Carlson interview, Pod Save America. Because we know that um, our opinions or our gut instincts about what Republicans want are not always attuned to where the MAGA base is. We bring in Sarah Longwell, who has done hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of focus groups with Trump voters to help us understand what tonight, if anything, might have changed the dynamics of this race. Did you get the sense that we did not fully understand the Republican base when Pod Save America guest Chris Christie was ruthlessly booed off stage? <laughs> yeah, they're like people chasing him with pitchforks. And I was like, I like that guy. I do too. He seems great. I like, like to have a beer with him. Uh, what are you going to do, Dan? Well, listen, the best part about the debate, I think, was for you being in the Crooked Media Discord. Which all the listeners can join at cricket.com slash friends if you want to be in the Discord next time. So you don't have to watch this alone on, or on Elon Musk's site. X, Twitter. X. You, get to be, you get to be with friends. You get commentary. It's a communal experience. Yeah. So I'll do it together. And uh, you get first access to upcoming live shows in places like Cleveland, Louisville, San Diego, and San Jose. End of plugs. Dan, let's talk about the debate. Uh, nine people on the stage. They're all in Cleveland. Fox News hosted. Uh, what was your general takeaway? I kept thinking the entire debate about the scene in Billy Madison after Billy Madison gives his speech mm -hmm. and the principal judging it says, we are all dumber for having heard that and have, may God have mercy on your soul. Yeah. <laughs> that is part of the quote that gets left out yeah. a lot, yeah. I mean, it, it was terrible, it was stupid, it was scary, yeah. the things that were cheered or should make us all worry about the future of our country or at least in segments of our country the from a perspective of just pure political strategy it was idiocy run amok I mean, it was, it was terrible. It was a terrible experience, and it had the feel of I used the term consolation bracket before, but that's what it felt like. Yeah. Where no one, it's it, it felt like the like the consolation bracket, like in the World Cup, like after you've lost, people kind of want to win. They don't try that hard, and the stakes feel pretty low, and that's what this felt like. Yeah, playing for third just doesn't have that kind of same joy to it getting the bronze yeah I think the story of the debate and we're going to go through all the candidates individually to the extent that they warrant it uh, the story of the debate was the Vivek Ramaswamy show he made the entire thing about himself he managed to get attacked he was attacking others he sucked up a lot of airtime. although I did see someone just tweeted you know how the reporters will do a summary of everyone's aggregate talking time it does sound like Mike Pence had the most but I think that's just because he talks like a slow motion Westworld robot program to be Ronald Reagan. There's nothing that explains Mike Pence's struggles in politics more than the fact that he spoke the most when we thought he spoke the least. <laughs> I, I really didn't think he spoke the <laughs> No one remembers a single word he said. Not a single word. Um, it was the... the I'm just going to whine for a minute. The stupid, like, extended drone shot and voiceover by Brit Hume for the first six minutes was bizarre. Starting the debate off with a bunch of questions about the Richmond, north of Richmond song was like the, the Fox News' new Joe the Plumber moment, which for you old heads out there, you might remember the 2009 campaign. Barack Obama got in a repartee with a guy named Joe the Plumber, and it became this little cause celeb. But yeah, I mean, I think everyone was watching to see if Chris Christie was going to land some haymaker on Donald Trump. I don't think that happened. A lot of people were watching Ron DeSantis to see if he would manage to catch up to Donald Trump in any way. Uh, I don't know that that happened. So yeah, I mean, the big was kind of the, my big takeaway, and and a lot else. Yeah, I think somewhere in Bedminster, New Jersey, Donald Trump is sitting at home 
feeling very happy about his decision not to go to the bay because there was no one on that stage did anything to make him think twice about skipping the next one yeah. or the one after that Yeah. because they didn't put pressure on him. They didn't attack him for not being there. They didn't do anything to try to alter the shape of the race. They just tried to come in first among the people who were fighting for second. It didn't really make sense to me. Yeah, somewhere in Bedminster, the... Uh ketchup and burgers are in his belly not against the wall because he's a he's a happy camper. he's so mad because there's nothing that he can tivo to watch on fox because <laughs> it was all the story shows were preempted by this <laughs> although all the fox hosts they felt like it was like they were the section about trump that we'll get into and whether uh you know he should be prosecuted fox was so apologetic for even raising the question or asking about the issue they, they were like apologizing to the audience to the candidates they couldn't move on fast enough i mean he is but for all intents purposes their boss yeah he's their boss he's simon editor Vivek said a few things we wanted to highlight. Uh, he recognized that he's new to the scene, that people don't really know him well, and they don't know how to pronounce his name, so he kind of ripped off an Obama line there. He said Trump was the best president of the 21st century. Debatable. Uh, he roasted Chris Christie for basing his campaign on grievance against Trump, and Vivek referenced the leaked DeSantis memo, though he forgot to mention who it was from. Skinny guy with a funny name, Dan. It's a pretty good line. How familiar, though. It does, does, does feel mildly familiar. It's uh, interesting to kind of rip off the incredibly popular former Democratic president, Barack Obama, in your kind of opening salvo in the campaign. I wonder why he did that. It worked for Obama? Yeah, it did. <laughs> <laughs> he broke. Uh, um, what do you think of, that, of those clips? What jumped out of you there? It, it's, hard, it's very hard to know how voters will interpret this performance. Yeah. But... The thing about being on a, on a stage with a lot of candidates is you have to have a plan to get noticed. Because yes. if you just speak, if you just answer the questions you're asked, you're not going to have a moment. You're, you're going to fade into the background. And many We'll talk about some of them. Many of these candidates faded into the background. Not Doug Burgum's eyebrows. They were there all night long, <laughs> looking, yeah. staring into my that was he. They actually went up three points out of pillars. <laughs> falling high in Iowa. Sorry. I mean, in credit to him, he did uh, attend the debate with a torn Achilles. That must be so painful. He seemed like he might have been on some painkillers. He definitely seemed happy to be there. I mean, I don't have anything to judge me because I've never seen the man speak before. (laughs) So I don't know what he's talking about. I can't remember his name. Um, But Vivek came in with a plan to dominate the conversation. And he did that quite well. He owned the debate. He picked fights. He had lines. He was well prepared. He knew the attacks were coming for him. And he had a response to every one of them. And he... He might have sounded like a uh, slightly deranged carnival barker, but he didn't sound like a politician. And everyone else on that stage sounded like a typical politician. So he stood out. And there, you know, I think the likely thing here is that there's he at least has given himself an opening to make a move in this race. What does that mean in a place where Donald Trump is 60% of the vote? Who knows? But the stories will be about him. Most people won't watch this debate. But they we will see clips of him. They'll just hear just that, hey, do you hear about this, this guy? Because most voters, most people have never seen him speak, don't know what he looks like, don't know who he is. All of a sudden, he's sitting center stage, and he's dominating the former Vice President of the United States, the former co-frontrunner and Ron DeSantis, a bunch of senators you've heard of, yeah. and he's sort of kind of kicking their ass left and right. Yeah. And so that at least will give him an opening with some number of voters. Yeah, he'll be, he'll dominate all the coverage tomorrow until Donald Trump turns <laughs> up. <laughs> <laughs> that is the small problem that we'll get to. At Fulton County. Uh, he'll probably he might go to Fulton County. Yeah, <laughs> Attica, like, wave a cup against the, the bars. Yeah, I, I think the 
The your campaign is all about vengeance and grievance line against Chris Christie was pretty damn good. And I thought defanged Christie in that moment. Uh, I think, like you said, Vivek benefited so much from getting attacked by Mike Pence. The most wooden, robotic, phony, typical politician sounding goober I've ever heard. Like the way he paused, he's like, I want to talk about the oath I made on January 6, 2017. And then I said a prayer. Uh, I put my hand on the Bible of Ronald Reagan. Oh, my God. The way he paused, like, the the place was basically groaning. But, yeah, I mean, like, he also, the I'm not running to be president of MSNBC line from Vivek wasn't bad. I'm like, hey, buddy, you're not qualified for that job either, but, like, you probably played <laughs> in the room. Um, the Super PAC puppet was a hit I thought was coming. It would have been a good one if Vivek had remembered to name who he was talking about. You have to be a broken brain weirdo like us to know that there was a New York Times story about Ron DeSantis' super PAC releasing a memo for him about debate strategy. He, I mean, which is interesting. We go back to that memo for the non-broken brain people who may be listening to this. The memo from the super PAC. like me.
nice, kindest thing I can say about him, which is he exceeded the exceedingly low expectations that we would have during this debate. He didn't like have one of those sort of like moments where his like brain snaps and he just laughs awkwardly in a, in a random moment. He didn't make any mistakes, but he didn't demonstrate anything that would make you think that he was a guy who could beat Trump or beat Biden. Like if his whole pitch was he was a better, more disciplined, more talented Trump without the baggage. And he didn't really show that. He just it sort of seemed like a politician who had some views that probably have some appeal in the MAGA base. And that was sort of it. I don't think he probably survived another day. Because I do think that this, there's been a lot of reporting that some of the big super PAC donors who gave some of the initial money were not going to keep funding a super PAC. They were the ones who were calling Glenn Youngkin and Brian Kemp trying to get them in the race. So if he had had a really bad debate, I think, made some real mistake, made sort of meme coming out of it, that would have been a huge problem for him. And I think he probably did nothing to help himself, but I'm not sure he hurt himself either. Yeah, I think he, he muddled through. Um, he did have one moment. He tried to manufacture a moment. Actually, Tim Miller recommended he do this, where he, like, good job, Tim. Jump, jump on the moderator, kind of push back against the question when there was a show of hands question asked. He was like, we're not children. We can talk about the issues. Then he just got bigfooted by Vivek, who was like, I think climate change is a hoax. But he raised his hand. That was the, 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 like, that moment just explained the differences between those two candidates, which is Ron DeSantis seems like a politician because he didn't want to answer the question. He doesn't want to put his hand up because he's thinking about the general election, and he knows putting his hand up there is going to look really, really bad. And not to mention, climate change is literally drowning his state. Like, parts of it are going away every day because of climate change. And so he tried to do this thing, and then Vivek just puts his hand up. Says, no, why don't you just raise your hand like a normal person instead of trying to be a politician? And stepped on him. It didn't look, look good. Uh, I think all of us think that were Ron DeSantis to win the nomination, uh, the issue that would be the most likely to defeat him would be his position on abortion, designed into law, a six week abortion ban. So when DeSantis was asked about abortion, he said he was going to stand on the side of life and defend life, his governor and his president, which Dan thinks is a very important win. So, I view that answer, Dan, as him continuing to... Do you feel are still there? Like, <laughs> oh my gosh, you are. Amazing. That answer, Dan, as him continuing to refuse to take a real position on whether he's national abortion. You had a different view of what you might do if you were running against Yeah, as the self-appointed fact-checker of Wikipedia, I declare that what Ron DeSantis said there when he said, I will defend life as president at is he endorsed signing a national law similar to the abortion ban in Florida? I think that is. We know that's what he's going to do. Of course. Me Pinocchio's. I'm just. I'm trying. We know that's not how we do it. Do anything to become president. Wise on a on a four character scale. I want to persuade you as to why he. Why I think what he did is essentially was trying to send a signal to the evangelical voters, particularly in Iowa, and the groups that have been pushing Republicans to be more aggressive on abortion bans. The ones who pushed him to sign this ban. Which he did, I think, pretty gleefully in Florida to do the same thing nationally. And Nikki Haley had this whole thing in here. She tried to adopt a moderate position where her thing was, we've never had 60 anti-choice votes in the Senate. We, that is, you don't need 60 votes because I can promise you this, that if the Republicans have a trifecta, they will end the filibuster Absolutely. to sign a national abortion ban. They will not be able to sustain the pressure from the base to avoid that. Or will they try? Yeah, they try. I totally agree. Yeah, I, like I think, r- regardless of how you interpret his um, his comments about abortion tonight in this debate, I agree with you that if he were to win the nomination, I would tie his views on abortion around his neck and do it every single day and make that the primary thing I ran against. I did think the one moment 
did seem to get the crowd going was he was asked about crime in Florida, and he sort of fact-checked right there, whoever had asked him the question, you and okay, then said, baby, you know, doggy. I'm the one who's done something about these George Soros-funded radical oh. left-wing prosecutors. We had the Soros, we had some Soros DAs elected. I removed them from their office. Now they're gone. And he got, like, big applause for that. And, you know, it's sort of a corny, canned thing. But I think, you know, look, I, I think that talking to Republican primary voters about crime and, you know, the Soros bookaboo is probably working better for him than, like, picking another fight with Disney, but Lobart. Yeah, I think you can, he seemed... DeSantis, who seemed somewhat uncomfortable throughout the whole debate, which is kind of his natural vibe, but he seemed his least uncomfortable talking about crime, and then in the education section where he started going off about banning critical race theory and quote-unquote gender ideology and all, like that's, his comfort zone are things that are like, shitty as culture wars. That are bigoted, right? That, that is where he is most comfortable with him. You're, if, he, if you're picking on gay kids and trans kids and you're, and you're making racist accusations against teachers and all that that that's where he is that's his happy place yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there was some very weird uh there's some clips worth checking out on twitter of him attempting to smile after answers that just show how unbelievably awkward he is as a human being they're worth watching people are leaving florida and drugs um, and that's how Mike they Pence, want it they want the democrats uh, to leave so it'll be a republican state was a little like he was a, the the reagan westworld robot but he was also like a here, Mike Pence, I think we've seen previously. Pence tried to go after Vic, saying uh, he was a rookie and basically that Republicans don't have time for on-the-job training. He called him a rookie without the experience to do the job. I mean, maybe a compelling argument against Vivek Ramaswamy, but from Donald Trump's vice president? Does that work? I don't know. The whole De Pence thing is... was It was Mike Pence. It was totally not memorable. He's just mayonnaise. Yeah. Right. You, you kind of know he's there. You don't really pay that much attention to it. People who hate it really, really hate it. No one really loves it. It's just it's not. It even the crowd like there was some. Che- I, it was unclear what they were cheering or booing. Whether this was a very bizarre crowd and sort of the reactions. But for most of the debate, even in his canned applause lines, no one clapped. No one. The main time people laughed is when he invoked Jesus's name. Yeah. And the rest of the time they sort of just ignored Mike. Jesus got tapped. They're either us. ignoring Mike Pence or they're trying to murder him. Those are the two ends of the spectrum in the Republican Party. I would love to know who the audience was, because sometimes it's a bunch of donors and the campaigns buy tickets. That might have been the case here. Yeah, I think that's what I think. It almost certainly is. Donors, political leaders, it's not base voters. Yeah, there was one moment where the candidates were all asked about Mike Pence's conduct on January 6th, and Chris Christie jumped in to defend him and said, Mike Pence stood for the Constitution. He deserves not grudging credit, but our thanks, blah, blah, blah. And it was just notable that uh, Christie defending Pence gets you a combined 113 unfavorability rating in Iowa. So... (laughs) I tell you about all you need about that moment. It's the last thing Mike Pence needs is Chris Christie defending him. I know, he's like, oh, this fucking guy. Are you kidding me? <laughs> um, all right. Our next sort of bucket of folks are, you know, Chris Christie, Nikki Haley, and Tim Scott. We kind of bucketed them together because they didn't do that much. Uh, Chris Christie in particular, I think, you know, he has been... He's been feeling himself when people talk about his performance against Marco Rubio in the 2016 primary. We, he really kicked the shit out of Rubio in that debate when uh, Rubio was kind of glitching like a robot, repeating the same line against Obama over and over again. Uh, but Christie, instead of going after Donald Trump, the person we all thought he was going to go after, decided, like everybody else, to go against uh, to go after Vivek Ramaswamy. At one point, Christie said that Vivek sounded like chat GPT during the debate. We don't really know what that means. He then said that the last skinny guy with an odd name who stood on the debate stage was Obama. And Christie said Vivek is the same kind of amateur that he was. 
Jake responded by asking Christie to give him a hug the way Christie hugged Obama back in 2012. I don't totally get what it means <laughs> to sound like ChatGPT. Like, it means nothing. Groundbreaking sound like what? Yeah, it's, it, it, I assume it means, I don't know. I don't know what it means. It's, yeah, like a kid cheating on his homework. It, it's a line written by a middling debate advisor. Yeah, I assume what he meant was someone who is learning about all the issues in the world for the first time in the last six months, which, by the way, is something Vivek said on Hugh Hewitt's podcast. You would know that, Chris Christie, if you listen to Pod Save the World and not this Pod Save America bullshit that you come on. But yeah, I know, I, like, like he just seemed like he got annoyed with Vivek. That, that was sort of the theme of the night. It seemed like all of them were genuinely very annoyed at Vivek Ramaswamy in kind of like a who is this kid attacking us tone. Yeah, for sure. And the, just for some context for people who may not be nerds of a certain generation like us, what Vivek is referring to with the hug is that in 2012, in the waning days of that campaign, Hurricane Sandy hit New York, New Jersey, the East Coast. Obama visited New Jersey during the campaign, came off the campaign trail, started dealing with the response of the hurricane, visited New Jersey, and... Chris Christie hugged Obama right as they were getting on the plane to thank him for all the work the federal government had done to help New Jersey. That was the moment that Chris Christie's 2024 presidential campaign died. So his approval rating among Republicans went in the toilet after that because the Republicans blamed him for electing Obama. Obama would have won without the Chris Christie hug. But, and so this, is, this goes to why Chris Christie can't win because Republicans hate him, yep. and why Vivek was quite well prepared, because he knew someone, but probably Christie, was going to do the Obama line, because Christie's probably done it somewhere, because he does all media, and was prepared to do it and nailed them. Yeah, he really did. Um, yeah, I mean, come on, Chris, you, like, your whole promise was you're going to get up there, you're going to take Donald Trump, and that's why we need you on that stage, and you just didn't even try. He didn't know how to, op- two things I think happened. One, he had no plan for what to do without Trump on stage. Yeah. And second, I think he really reacted. You can see in his face when he got booed. The first time he went after Trump and said, whether you think it's criminal or not, his conduct is beneath the office of the president, and the crowd just basically booed him into silence. He backed off then. And they all backed off then. There was never a critique of Trump after that. And he did, I mean, I don't, he did nothing to help himself. It probably hurt himself. And he may owe all the Democrats who gave him money to get him on that stage a refund. I don't know anyone that would do that. Uh, yeah, in his defense, it is kind of hard to figure out how to pivot from a Richmond North of Richmond question <laughs> into a Trump hit. <laughs> but uh, we digress. So Nikki Haley was also up there, former uh, ambassador to the UN. She fancies herself a uh, foreign policy expert and is really focused on foreign policy in this campaign. So Haley attacked Vivek on his views on Ukraine. She basically said that, you know, after the Ukraine war, Russia is going to roll into other countries like those in the Balkans if we don't stop them now. She talked about how Putin killed Yevgeny Prigozhin, a Russian oligarch who ran the Wagner mercenary group on his flight on Wednesday, and how generally Putin is a murderer and Vivek is choosing a murderer over the U.S. Vivek responded by saying, I wish you well in your future career on the boards of Lockheed and Raytheon. That's a pretty good hit, and, and one that his staff previewed in Politico today, I believe. I respect her for waving the flag here and fighting for supporting Ukraine because I do think it's the right thing to do. And I do think, like, I'm really concerned about where the Republican Party's going in terms of general isolationism, but also the, uh, on this issue. But, um, you know, it's an electoral loser. It, it's got to be really challenging. And, and to, to make this the thing you 
focus on in the debate against Arrival. I mean, she really went after Vivek on him saying that he would essentially get rid of uh, U.S. aid to Israel by 2028. He has a whole bunch of conditions for how he would do that, but that was the attack she wanted to go after here, but he didn't back down on that front. He just went right back at her. She did not do a very good job of explaining that attack. At all. No one not really got it. And it is a potentially potent attack because there's obviously a lot of support for Israel in the Republican Party, but particularly among the evangelical community that dominates the Iowa caucuses. Yes, exactly. And so you could that you you're gonna see a lot more about that in the coming days if as we suspect Vivek has a little bit of a moment here. It's gonna get pretty nasty pretty quick on some of those things. A lot of it's gonna be uh, racist and religiously bigoted and all the above. Yeah, Dan and I were talking about this before the show. What these candidates say on on the air at a debate or what they say in interviews is usually a highly sanitized version of what shows up in people's mailboxes in the form of direct mail pieces. That's what these candidates get really, really, really nasty. The, the other thing about Haley, and this is true of a lot of the candidates who try to run on their foreign policy experience and knowledge, is twofold. One, they never, ex- they assume a base of knowledge about foreign policy from voters. Yes. Greatly exceeds from, like, yes. what does Killed Pergozin mean to anyone, anyone who has not yet listened to the forthcoming episode of Posse of the World? That's one. And then two, they try, they explain why these things are good for the world and not why it's good for American families. Yeah. And so there's, there is a, there is a very strong argument. The Biden folks have actually made this on multiple occasions about why supporting Ukraine is good for American security. And, Amer- and, and how it protects the interests of American families, but none of the Republicans did that last night. It's very, Re- it's all like Mike Pence did. It's all Reagan-esque, short version. It's, it, it doesn't, it doesn't connect with anyone's lives. Yeah, Re- Pence tried to make the case that look, we want to arm the Ukrainians so they can fight the Russians and not allow Russia to steamroll through Ukraine and then go next to a NATO country like Poland, which means. Article 5, part of the NATO Charter, yeah. means that we as a has to respond militarily. Yeah. That's a compelling case, but boy, is it complicated. It's also going to be hard to explain to people why we'd have to stop the invasion of Poland. Yeah. I mean, we, we should, obviously, but not a lot of people know what Article 5 is or no. why that would be a thing. Donald Trump famously uh, flirted with not supporting it. Yeah. Um, uh, Senator Tim Scott, South Carolina, also on the stage tonight. Uh, you know, Scott is, in some polls, he's in second place, or th- third place in Iowa. He's at 9% in Iowa in the Des Moines Register poll. Uh, he's got a ton of money because he's, a, you know, a lot of the donor class like him. He's an incredibly conservative voting record, uh, deeply religious individual, but I think has sort of a kindler, gentler presentation on some issues. But I don't know, it just seemed like he kind of disappeared up there tonight. He did not have a plan to get attention. And he missed a moment. And the clock is taking on all of these people. They are not making progress. Trump is gaining ground on them as a collective. Individually, they're swapping around the 40% that exists for the non-Trump vote. And it's, you can't pass these moments up. You have to, and there aren't enough debates. Like when Obama struggled a little bit early on in 2008, being one of 10 people on stage, he, as he would say, he's Midwestern polite. And so he'd really struggle to interrupt or speak when it was not his turn. And really, we really had to beat him up to be able to get him to do that. Scott suffered. Scott and Haley, I think, suffered from a similar thing, which is they just didn't seize the moment at any point, and so they spoke. They got there a lot of time. None of it was that memorable. They didn't do anything to help themselves, and and that's a loss for them. Uh, finally, we got kind of our also ran category. Our, our Doug, our husband's.
American Disabilities Act. I said, why did, why is he, he wants to be Mike, he doesn't have the talent, it's one of those Bitchy little, little making fun of the, his father, making fun of the, uh, disabled people. Fussy man. I, it was just a weird 45 minutes. Like, I, like, uh, Tucker Carlson, just asked really strange questions. Like, did Epstein kill himself? He followed up three or four times. He suggested that the Attorney General Bill Barr covered up Epstein's murder. Uh, Trump was like, I think he probably committed suicide, man. Like, I don't know what to tell you. Uh, uh, Tucker asked Trump if he's worried that the Democrats are trying to kill him. They asked if Joe Biden was going to make it to election day. Uh, Tucker suggested that Kamala seems senile also. Uh, yeah, it was just weird. Yeah, it, the ostensible purpose of this, I guess there were two purposes of this interview. One was to try to, quote unquote, take viewers away from the debate, to, to step on the debate. I don't think that worked. It's not a live broadcast. Yeah, I mean, but it, just pause it. But they, yeah, right, you can, it's true. <laughs> they, have, they have invented the capacity to pause television and record things and watch them later, so it's weird, yeah. It is. So that part didn't really make sense. The other reason was pure spike. Yeah. Like, it's just a Total giant spike. fuck you to Fox News to do this with Tucker Carlson, who they fired, who is in violation of his non-compete agreement doing this other show where he just shits on Fox News all the time. I don't know what was gained from it. I don't think it... There's just nothing big enough happened that made that it's stepping on it. The bigger thing that's going to happen is when Trump surrenders to the authorities and is arraigned and has his mugshot taken tomorrow, tomorrow. that will step on the I don't even know, even know what it's stepping on what is it like coverage of a vector on the swami I don't think you think that matters but, like, uh, they can probably do one hundred Sunday shows tomorrow yeah and and he'll do more he'll do the morning shows but hope more importantly he will just do every right wing podcast YouTube show 
there is yeah. in co-hosting Jordan, Jordan Peterson's show for Hedek Month. Politico had a really, a couple months ago, weeks and months of time, he's nothing, a really smart story about his media strategy and how he is everywhere all the time yeah. doing everything he possibly can. It's very... I hesitate to make this comparison, but it's very reminiscent of that. He might need to give himself the opportunity to take a He had a press strategy to go everywhere, do everything, introduce himself, go bottom up, and even around the media court that traditional media were painted. So we'll see how Ronald Trump takes advantage but he's going to be, and he's in a good position because he's running his mini Trump who wants to partner him, so he actually has something that is on his message to say about this tomorrow that is helpful to him. Yeah, no, but there was another piece in Politico. Adam Red wrote a profile of Vivek today. It was basically about how his campaign office is just, they built a studio. They built a TV and podcast and media studio for 80 grand in the campaign office. He has another podcast studio in his basement. He says yes to everything. 11 p.m., 6 a.m., doesn't matter. He's also got no job. He's got a private plane. So he can get everywhere he needs to go, whatever he needs to get there. So, like, yes, he's he's super energetic and active and out there. But back to this, this Tucker thing, like... Even Trump was kind of like, kind of was like, I don't really know what this format, I don't even really know what this show is, but we're going to get better ratings. Uh, my favorite part of the night was you and I were watching the pre-debate coverage and Sean Hannity was on, and he just had that like scorned, jilted lover kind of vibe, you know, he like had to suck up to Trump for like six years, take his calls late at night, do every softball interview, and then Tucker Carlson you know, gets the gets the big bracket interview tonight, screws him over. Like, he looked genuinely hurt by the whole thing. I mean, Sean Hannity was an active participant. Sorry, Sean Hannity was an active participant in trying to overthrow the government, <laughs> while Tucker Carlson was texting his producers how much he hated Donald like, Trump. I hate this guy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then maybe Hannity got lucky and scored a Pence interview tonight. Who yeah, knows? Good for you, Sean. Yeah, I, I don't think this interview did anything for anyone. Like, by the way, Twitter is such bullshit. The, the little ticker under the interview claimed it had 80 billion views. I don't believe that for one second. Yes, more people watch it than the Super Bowl. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just like, whatever. Uh, okay, we are going to take a quick break. When we come back, you'll hear from Sarah Longwell from The Bulwark. She has done hundreds and hundreds of focus groups for Republican voters. She knows what they think, for better, for worse. So stick around for that to get her reactions to the debate. Pods in America is brought to you by Article. Article believes in delightful design for every home. And thanks to their online-only model, they have some really delightful prices, too. Love Article. There's a lot of furniture here in the office that's Article. I got some Article furniture for, we got some for our house outdoors, which looks great. It's affordable. It's comfortable. It's just, it's great furniture. Their curated assortment of mid-century modern coastal industrial Scandi at Boho Designs makes furniture shopping simple. Article's team of designers are all about finding the perfect balance between style, quality, and price. They're dedicated to thoughtful craftsmanship that stands the test of time and looks good doing it. Article offers fast, portable shipping across the U.S. and Canada, plus you waiting around. You pick the delivery time and they'll send you updates every step of the way. Article's knowledgeable customer care team is there when you need them to make sure your experience is smooth and stress-free. Article's offering our listeners $50 off your purchase of $100 or more. To claim, visit article.com slash crooked and the discount will be automatically applied at checkout. That's article.com slash crooked for $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes we're faced with the crossroads in life and we don't know which path to take. Maybe you're thinking about a career change or feeling like your relationship needs some TLC. Whatever it is, therapy can help you map out your future and trust yourself to find the way forward. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. 
Designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. We love therapy. We're therapy boys. So we're therapy boys. You can, uh, you know, you can talk to people about what's bothering you. You, uh, like, like, say your, uh, your co-host is late for the ad session. Two minutes late. Two minutes late. There he is. There you go. Now we talked it out and everything's better. Let therapy be your map with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash PSA today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash PSA. We are so excited to welcome to the show the co-host of the Next Level Podcast and the Focus Group Podcast, Sarah Longwell. Sarah, it's great to see you. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. So we, uh, you might not know this, but Dan and I are giant lips, and uh, what we think about Republican primary debates probably doesn't matter. So I wanted to name this segment uh, Check Your Lib Rage. Dan told me it was bad. So we just really want to know what you thought of the debate. If anybody, based on the hundreds and hundreds of focus groups you have done, move the needle tonight in terms of the Republican primary electorate. Yeah, so I watch this stuff with two parts of my brain. There's the me part. Uh, and so my reaction, as Sarah Longwell, is uh, that was terrible. That was very stupid. Uh, I can't believe I was ever a member of that political party. Uh, anybody who said something sane got booed. Anybody who said something insane got cheered for. Uh, but then there's the other part of my brain that watches it through the eyes of voters that I listen to week in, week out, these two-time Trump voters. And uh, I don't know. I mean, it was such a weird debate. Uh, DeSantis was left almost no impression. Uh, I was, you know, just, just the, the sheer number of them on stage and the way that Vivek was just chewing up time uh, <laughs> cost DeSantis a lot. He wasn't fighting to get in, and so it was easy to forget he was there. Uh, and so I'm not sure he did himself any favors with voters. Uh, I'm not quite sure how to assess Vivek's performance, because on one hand, he got himself a lot of time. He just was on camera a ton. He was fighting with Mike Pence. Uh, but he was... Equal parts, the crowd was with him cheering, and then the crowd was getting pretty annoyed with him. He was a foil for some of the other people's best moments, like Nikki Haley, uh, when she was beating up on him. But whenever I find somebody deeply repellent, I know now that I need to adjust and assume that them being repellent to me means they're probably going to get a five-point bump in the polls uh, from base voters. And so Vivek, probably people who didn't know who he was, uh, probably there's people out there who like him, like how hard he defended Trump. He really took the air out of DeSantis being the one to defend Trump. I mean, every canned line that DeSantis had that he really wanted to hit hard, Vivek had said like five minutes prior, and it was just really like, yeah, taking the wind out of DeSantis's sails. Um, it was like, a, there's a little bit of a weird crowd there. Um, I couldn't get a bead on, it's, I think maybe like half the room was cheering sometimes while the other half was booing. Like, Nikki Haley was getting these big applause lines when she's going to bat for Ukraine. But I know that Republican-based voters are not excited about sending more money to Ukraine. So I couldn't quite understand uh, exactly where everybody was. But I do know that... Uh, the Asa Hutchinsons, the Chris Christie's, uh, the people who were explicitly expressing anti-Trump sentiments, Pence, when he did it, they were getting booed and shouted down. The crowd did not like that. So those are sort of my, that's my top line thought. No one in the room other than Christie and Hutchinson, she met it, made any sort of argument against Trump. Last I checked, Trump is winning by a lot of points. 
he, and if we stay on this trajectory, all these people are going to get their ass kicked. Based on the current, on what you've seen with the voters, what is the size of the anti-Trump lane, and what's the best way to get there if you're going to get shouted down for making a case against Trump? Is there some other better way than Christine Hutchinson trying to do it, or do you just have to hope Trump collapses under his own way? Yeah, so the way that I break up the Republican Party right now is sort of, there's 30% always Trumpers, 30% maybe Trumpers, 30% move on from Trumpers, and then like 10% never Trumpers. And so Chris Christie and Asa Hutchinson have like a 10 uh, you know, a ceiling of 10% from the never-Trumpers. Because the move-on from Trumpers, those are DeSantis people or Vivek people. Those are people who worry that Trump can't win. They have electability concerns. But they're not anti-Trump. There's just not... That, and that's the thing. They're, there's a difference between the always-Trump base and then... What was that breakdown? I would say 90% of the party is open to Trump in some way. Like, they will... The, the move-on from Trumpers Yes. Yeah. 